started in just a moment. Um, and a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, business development, strategic communication, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at x.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our show today is where value-based care is working. Value-based care is already here, depending on what part of the healthcare marketplace you're in, and we're looking at what's working. Our guest today is Paul Bergeron, um, who's a doctor and MBA, and he's the CEO of The Startup MD, which provides physician, physician executive guidance to small and mid-sized healthcare startups. You can follow him at thestartupmd.com. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. First off, Here's the format of the show. It's, not, it's 90 minutes long, and Paul and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture and some other topics. Then for the second half, we'll focus on our topic today of where value-based care is working. Throughout the call, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. Uh, and in order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with call-in. To register, you can visit callin.com or you can download the Call-In Social Podcasting app in your app store, create an account, and log in. And that's a better way to participate in the show, is to now create an account and log in, and then visit this page again. Um, so welcome to the show, Paul, and please introduce yourself. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. My name is uh, Dr. Paul Bergeron. As Stephen said, I am an MD, MBA. I have extensive experience, particularly in population health and value-based care. I've been doing that for the last decade for companies like Steward Healthcare Network and Prospect. Um, I recently started an organization called the Startup MD, where we consult with early to mid-stage startups, specifically helping them on go-to-market strategies, um, obtaining investments, and also lending credibility to their brand, especially with their uh, new organization. We also help with developing MVPs and, and helping tailor the, the product as well as the messaging about the product to customers. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Well, good. Well, so we'll, we'll kick this off with a discussion of the macro environment. Um, and I remember when everyone was just blissfully happy two or three years ago and no one ever talked about the macro environment. Um, <laughs> now, Unfortunately, it seems like we need to talk about the macro environment more. And so right now, I'd say that for the last few weeks, we've been living in an environment where the tone was set by the FD, by the Fed in December. And the Fed, in theory, the Fed has been aggressively raising rates 
and like a hawk watching the uh, inflation and raising interest rates um, fights inflation. And so the Fed was very much hoping to curtail inflation, not let inflation get out of control. And raising rates caused the market to pull in and caused finance to get much more conservative. And starting in December, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, hinted that the Fed may cut rates three times in the coming year. Um, and that was more aggressive in terms of a loose monetary policy by the Fed than anyone expected. And if the Fed is going to cut rates, that means that value, stock market valuations and private market valuations can go up, and they did. And so we've been living in a, uh, a, an environment where the market's been going up in reaction to the Fed's, and, it, and the Fed would only say they're going to cut interest rates if they thought that inflation had been licked, basically. So inflation, no longer a concern, um, and rates coming down, that, that's a great environment for um, stock market prices to go up, valuation levels to go up, and this instability that people have been so concerned about for two years, sort of this period coming to a bit of an end. Um, so, and the last two days, the market's been down a little bit, not clear why the market's been down a little bit, but the last nearly month, the market's been up um, because of in reaction to this. So, and overall, this is really good news for innovators. Innovators want there to be liquidity in financial markets. They want there to be enthusiasm in financial markets. Um, it, interestingly, in a high interest rate environment, that's bad for innovators because innovators are tied to growth and big investors can just put their money in bonds in a high interest rate environment. Um, but if rates go down, then investors have to take that money out of bonds and put it in growth equities. And that's where, and so and that gives op opportunity to innovators. So this, uh, this idea that f inflation was a great fear, but that we've beat inflation and so interest can, can come back down. This is a really good sign for the innovation economy. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, my, my only thought really is thank God. This is something that we really needed to happen in order for us to get the growth that we need, particularly with the startups. Um, there's, there's been significant concern prior. Obviously, anybody that's in a startup has noticed that's very difficult um, this past year to, to receive funds. They've had to stretch the dollar much longer than they thought they would have had to, um, and their valuations went down. So this is fantastic news that we, what we're talking about today. That uh, that's great. And then the next thing is that um, I think there was a surprise news announcement today that KKR is bringing out its portfolio company, Bright Spring Health, which is a community health organization. So this is in healthcare services, which is about selling healthcare to the public, not digital health, which is about selling software to the institutions of healthcare. But so KKR bringing out Bright Spring Health, and it may IPO the company and seek to raise a billion dollars from public markets. Um, so th this is really interesting be for a couple of reasons. Um, so first of all, the IPO window is effectively closed. The number of digital health IPOs is down somewhere between 95 to 100% over the last two years, um, depending on how you define digital health. 
Uh, and this has been very bad for the innovation economy. There, there's a food chain and, and you need the whole food chain to be functioning. You need companies that are later stage, innovative healthcare software companies that are later stage, you need them to be able to go public or be sold to, to consolidators in the market. And then you need those investors who made that bet to be rewarded and then take that money and put it back into early stage venture. Um, and that and the liquidity there and the process had all dried up and it's still dried up right now. And that's, that's paralyzing and tough on investors in digital health. And so what we need to see is the IPO window to open. And then we need to see uh, leading digital health unicorns go out and go public. Um, and typically what you don't, the, the IPO window is closed for everybody right now. And usually the way it opens is as follows. You have some very high quality companies in healthcare and tech IPO, and they are well received by the major buy side institutions. That's, that's the Fidelities and Blackrocks who buy and hold. And then their stock price goes up about 15% and stays up. And if that happens, <laughs> then other companies go out and then effectively the IPO window is open and then digital health companies, which are seen as riskier, will also feel they can IPO as well. And there's definitely a market on the part of buy side institutions like Fidelity and BlackRock for IPOs. They just need to know it's going to be a smooth market and a good reception and the stocks are going to stay the same or go up and not go down for them to participate. Uh, and so KKR is bringing out a quality company in healthcare services, this is testing the waters. Um, and then the, the press also noted that in the wings is another company. This one's actually a healthcare software company, Waystar, which is in revenue cycle management, selling revenue cycle management software and services into hospitals. Um, Waystar has been spoken of for several months now as likely to IPO. And the press was speculating that they may also go out in January or soon. Um, so both of those, that would be outstanding. So would a tech IPO, especially if we saw some lift with a tech IPO, some enthusiasm. And so this is now, people may remember that in September, several companies, including J&J's Kenview IPO'd, and more than half of them went down after an IPO. And then it was like the whole IPO market was covered in a wet blanket and, and, it, and it, it was a failed opening. They, they tried to open the IPO window. It didn't open. That was in the September, October, November timeframe. And so what this represents is that stock, stock market levels are up. Investors are a little more enthusiastic. They want to see more product. And so KKR is going to try to see, test the waters with the IPO of Brightspring. And this could lead this, these are the steps that are necessary and it has to go well. Next, it has to go well for the IPO window to open for digital health. So, Paul, any, any thoughts? Do you think we're going to see more IPOs and then the opening of the IPO window for digital health? Well, I think we have to see how this, this experiment works. So we haven't seen this in quite a long time. So the fact that it's happening now is, is great news. But really, to your point, you were mentioning it. It's which way does the IPO go once, once it goes? Um, is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Are we going to have that perfect path that, that you described, or we're going to have the paths that we're more familiar with, unfortunately. Um, overall, though, I think it's just yet another indicator of uh, the strength of the marketplace going forward. 
Yep. And so the next is, is that we're just seeing growing global instability that is hard to quantify and understand. But most recently, we're seeing that um, I can't believe I'm including this on a, on a digital health podcast, but we're seeing that Houthi rebels in Yemen are attacking Red Sea shipping. Um, and what's critical about the Red Sea is that this is how oil tankers go from the Persian Gulf to Europe. Um, and America is the security guarantor of Europe's oil, uh, getting it out of the Persian Gulf and through the Red Sea, the Suez Canal and to Europe. And the reason that America is the guarantor there is that America doesn't want um, Spanish and French and British and German and, and even Russian uh, navies plying around there. Uh, that was the that, that was what it looked like in the era of the great power empire rivalries that led to World War II. And so America's promise is that we will just guarantee all the security of all the maritime trade. So you don't even need to have a navy, let alone protect your own shipping. Um, uh, and so America's on the hook for protecting this. Uh, and what's happened is that commercial shippers don't believe U.S. promises of protecting the shipping in the Red Sea because the Houthi rebels have been very well armed and, and, and have been very opportunistic in attacking ships. And so they're sending the oil around Africa, around the Cape, uh, Cape, around, um, Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, and that in turn promises to potentially lead to oil shortages, spikes in oil prices, Spikes in oil prices are the number one driver of inflation, which is what we were all so glad that the Fed seemed to think we've beaten. Uh, and this hits Europe first, but it hits the whole industrialized world second. Um, so that's one. So we're keeping our eye on that. But you could see an oil crisis a la the 1970s, um, uh, uh, you know, oil shortages that could possibly happen. And you could also see something similar coming out of a possibly expanded war in the Middle East. So. Uh, Israel was attacked in October, and since then, that war, Israel declared war on, uh, on Hamas in Gaza, and that war has not spread regionally, although many people thought that it would be very easy for it to spread regionally, and that also could get big fast and, and have similar very negative effects on stability. In turn, um, you know, driving economies into recession, bringing inflation back, let alone the war and destruction, you know, in, in the region. So nothing, you know, nothing definitive here, just there's, there's growing hard to understand the sources of instability. And all of this is really bad for the innovation economy. The innovation economy needs there to be broad sunlit uplands as far as the eye can see. And when there's mysterious instability in the wings, people don't want to make long bets. They don't want to take $100 million tied up in a venture fund for seven years uh, and have them make big opaque bets on new technology. So uh, that's that, that's a, a wild card. Paul, any, any thoughts on that? Well, I agree. It's definitely a wild card. And I don't know if you saw the report about the deputy of uh, the direct deputy leader of Hamas was hit in Beirut and Lebanon. And the Israelis basically said, hey, it's, this has nothing to do about the country. This is specifically about Hamas. So there's a lot of sensitivity in trying to prevent that expansion of the war. But I, I believe that there's, there's definitely a, a significant risk of that, and that will impact a lot of what we're trying to accomplish this year. 
Yeah, and so we'll we'll keep our eye on that. Um, so uh, interestingly, um, TechCrunch is a great uh, tech journal that follows the tech sector in general. And in general, digital health follows tech. It follows tech more than it follows life science in terms of trends. Uh, and what the TechCrunch had an article that is claiming that we are at the end of the triaging period. So um, starting two years ago, the Fed started hiking rates. Uh, venture-backed companies that had previously found it relatively easy to raise next rounds suddenly found there was a lot of instability and, and illiquidity, and it was very hard to raise next rounds. And so venture funds stepped in and told their portfolio companies to belt tighten and lay off people, which they did. Uh, and then they triaged. They gave. Uh, they told some companies that they weren't going to invest in them anymore. They told other companies that they would you know, fully back them. And then they tried to help other companies that they might be able to help. So that, that's the three parts of triaging. And so TechCrunch is saying that in among tech firms, um, we're at the end of triaging, we're at the end of, of uh, VC funds going to favored portfolio companies and offering to give special treatment and helping them raise their next round. And now those companies will have to make do with what they have and raise rounds from from new investors or, you know, figure out how to get to profitability from where they are. So I thought that that, that was interesting. Just we've, we've gone through some different phases in this whole contractionary period uh, uh, in digital health investing. Um, and so, um, uh, but Paul, are, are you seeing any of this? Were you, were you watching um, triaging happen? Do you think triage, the period of triaging is over in digital health? I think uh, the, the triage was, I'd say triage and part of the triage was a purge. So when I've gone and listened to um, investors in Silicon Valley, basically you'd hear like 40% of their portfolio they're getting rid of, which is sort of unheard of. And that's where I, where I use the word purge. So I think the triaging and, and the, the deep cuts have happened. I think we're always at risk for having some more of that. But I think the, the big triage, unless some of those variables that we have no idea if they're going to occur or not, for example, of increasing oil prices, et cetera. Um, if that's in check, I think we've, we've gone through the hard stage and now we have a, a better opportunity going forward. So, and then I'll, uh, just because we're kicking off the new year, I thought I would try to, to contextualize where the innovation economy is. So the digital health innovation economy is young company leaders and investors together. Um, and uh, so I, I try to use that lens when looking at news stories. So I'd say that we, we're in a time of unprecedented um, wind downs, unfortunately. So this is venture-backed companies that, and, and you know, we entered the regime of zero interest rate policy in 2009. And from 2009 until around 2022, it was very easy to raise money comparatively. And then starting in 2022, it became hard to raise money. Um, and so many companies that uh, had found it easy to raise money suddenly found it hard to raise money. And now we're in a phase, the first time since 2009, of a shakeout, and wind downs, and as you mentioned, a, a purge uh, of companies that, from a venture perspective, purge means you won't invest in them anymore. But that often means that those young companies can't get to profitability and can't get others to invest in them as well. So that leads to wind downs. Also asset sales, we've seen a, we've seen a, a bump in asset sales. 
An asset sale usually means that a young company was being sold for, for very little value, unfortunately, that they, uh, and that they, and the buyer simply bought assets from them rather than buying the whole company. Um, so we're in an age of wind downs. We're also, I think, and this is a contrarian view of mine, we're in an age of roll-ups. So I, I was very interested to see that Virgin Pulse, a top company in the digital, um, in the employer digital health space, acquired HealthComp for a combined valuation of $3 billion. Um, and this, rep this represents the fact that employers um, want to buy consolidated suites. If you can imagine 30 years ago, employers didn't want to buy a spreadsheet and, an, uh, and a word processor and a contact manager and uh, a slide presenter. They wanted to buy a suite and Microsoft won that, that um, that enterprise buy play by the by corporate buyers, so too a number of corporate buyers in the world of employers buying healthcare software, and I think also providers buying healthcare software increasingly want to make enterprise buys, and that's driving rollups as well. And I'd say the 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 the, the current market view is that this rollup trend hasn't started yet and won't start for several months, but I, I, I'm making a call that I see it starting early, starting now. So the time of rollups, it's still a time of difficulty raising funds. So we saw in reports that Q3 was a very tough quarter to raise funds and the reports for Q4 aren't out yet, but I would expect it to be similarly tough comparing Q4, which just ended to Q3. So total Q3 funding was $3 billion, and that was down 14% from Q2. Um, so, and, and I also think that we're, that with stock market levels now at record highs, possibly the IPO window opening, possibly rates coming down, I think that we may be through the worst of that. We may start to see uh, investment rates or, or investor proclivity to invest loosen up and improve given this better macro context we've just talked about. Um, uh, and uh, so then um, uh, I also saw on the, the All In podcast, which I like to follow, which covers tech, but not digital health. Uh, they said that, that what they're hearing in Silicon Valley is that many funds raised money and invested heavily in, the, in companies that were raising rounds in 2021, which was the height of the boom. And that nearly all of those investments, the great majority of those investors are expected to get poor returns. And that half of the funds that made, that invested substantially a great deal of their assets in rounds in 2021, those funds will not be able to raise next funds and will shut down. So this is, this is, um, I think that's unprecedented. And this is getting to what you, you used the word unprecedented before that some of the, some of the hangover from this, this boom and the decisions that were made during the boom, um, is, is unprecedented. And then I also saw a different news story that said that they expect that 25% of all venture funds may shut down uh, in the next year or so. Um, and this also leads to the, the relatively new phenomenon of VCs jumping to be execs at portfolio companies. So, so as, as venture funds shut down, you'll see 
a VC will jump into a biz dev or a finance role typically, or maybe even a CEO role at a portfolio company uh, as their next gig. Um, so, uh, Paul, any, any thoughts on that? Does that seem excessive to you? Some of this is about tech, not digital health. Um, but but what, what, what do you think? Um, I happen to agree with you on this one. So I, I definitely think that the path that you laid out is, is where, it's, where it's likely to go. Um, and so we have, um, we have John is also writing us. Thank you, John. He says, he says, part of that is interest rates. Part of it is also poor performance by health tech companies in public markets and IPOs. Bessemer Venture Partners discussed this in their State of Health Tech report in October. That's interesting. Thanks, John. I'll go check out that Bessemer Venture Partners report from October. Um, and then you wrote, uh, I spoke with the authors of that report um, and what they're saying runs parallel to what they're discussing right now. Okay, good. So, um, and then John puts one of his, John's from, Chil this is John Moore from Chilmark Research, and he he put in one of his own reports uh, on uh, in, in the chat. So thank you, John. Um, so then I'll, I'll also bring up an interesting phenomenon. Once again, this is from tech, and I do think we'll see the same thing in digital health, but it's the phenomenon of the zombie corn. Okay. <laughs> Paul, have you heard of, of zombie corns? Uh, if you haven't, maybe you will start hearing about them. No, I haven't um, yet. This first so introduction. A zombie corn is a, is a unicorn, so that's technically a company that achieved a $1 billion or higher valuation as a private company. Usually they're spoken of as likely to IPO, get, get some of the returns back and liquidity back to their existing investors. And then what can happen is that, uh, is that public market comparables might see their valuation go way down. So the public market comparable might be valued at 20 times forward revenue, and that may go down to eight times forward revenue, for example. Um, and then at that private company, they look at those comps and they say, wow, that means that our whole company is worth much less than the preference stack of our company. So preferred investors have more of a claim on value uh, of the company than all the management team does, for example. And they look at that and they say, that a lot would have to change and go right for us, the workers, to, um, you know, to get out from under this and to have a return. And so then talent starts leaving. So your top salespeople, your top entrepreneurs, um, your top product people start to leave. And maybe something's happening like a boom in AI startups and digital health. Uh, and and they, they leave and jump to those companies, which have fresh, reasonable cap tables and a path to get a big return on, on your sweat equity over the next couple of years. And that then leaves the, the unicorn as, as a seemingly healthy unicorn on a good track, but actually having had its top salespeople and others leave to go join other companies. And then it's, it's stuck. Uh, and you can, and so uh, anyway, um, there's an article in the New York Times um, by Aaron Griffith about this phenomenon uh, and a prediction that 3,200 VC-backed companies will shut down this year. That that's the same, the purge and and the um, the wind downs that I mentioned. So that that's tech, and they may be they may be lumping digital health in as a small part of overall B2B and B2C tech in that. Um, but that's just something. It's kind of a somber note as things are looking up a little bit for us. It's kind of a somber note um, on the environment here. So any any thoughts on uh, on 
whether we'll see zombie corns in digital health uh, or you know, that number of shutdowns this year? Uh, the shutdowns seem consistent with what I've been listening to for the past several months, so that's not a big surprise. I haven't really heard about the zombie corn until this conversation, um, but it, it does make sense that definitely talent's moving around at this stage of the game, particularly in tech. And we have a comment from Anish that uh, VC partners are generally not the best people uh, to run companies, so this trend is disturbing. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, you, so it, it it depends. They they can be good salespeople, and that that can be helpful in sales, biz dev, and and even and they they're probably they speak the language of finance as well, so they can even jump to a finance role. Um, but yeah, it, it can be a little a little disconcerting to see someone who you knew as a as a VC trying to sell deals for years is suddenly head of biz dev at a, you know, at one of their own portfolio companies. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, so then um, for our audience, any macro trends you guys want to call out um, for us? Uh, and then uh, so uh, also, Paul, moving on to industry reports, were there any reports that came out in the last month or so that you thought it was worth, you know, mentioning to our audience or citing a finding of to our audience. I don't have one tip of my tongue. I actually don't. No, so I, I, I didn't see any reports in the last month either. Um, for our audience, any any reports you guys want to to call out, um, you know, funding reports or or other reports and and a, a finding from it, you know, worth it for our. Um, uh, for our audience. So I'll, I'll and I'll, while I'll, I let you guys type in the chat, I'll move on to, to news and trade journal news. So we're still in a time where there's few fundraising announcements that, that that's, that's, that's unfortunate. And there's more layoff and wind down announcements than, than new company launches. Um, but I, I was, I was very glad to see the news that devoted health just announced that it raised a $175 million Series E funding, and they're called an insure tech company. So that, that, that that's interesting. I've seen different iterations of Devoted Health, and they're now an insure tech company. And this, this was announced by their CEO Ed Park, who some of you will recognize that name from his Athena Health days. And this was led by Fearless Ventures uh, and also Maverick Ventures, and had participation from prior funds and Drayson Horowitz, General Catalyst, and F Prime. And it had previously raised, I think, a, a round of over a billion dollars in the past. So this company has raised a lot of money uh, over time. And so it was, it was really great to see this. So Devoted Health is one of the star companies out there. Um, and it has raised a round with participation from some of the most famous and prominent venture funds in digital health. And so this, for, for literally months would go by and we wouldn't see a deal like this. We wouldn't see... Uh, you know, a leading digital health company close around with leading funds backing it. Pre-2022, we saw this all the time, but we didn't see this for, we didn't see this frequently for two years. And so it's nice to see um, that Devoted Health is on track and it's nice to see that it's getting a, a syndicate of the, uh, you know, of the very best venture funds. Um, so then I'll, I'll also, let's see, a second story, um, Veridime, which is the new name of Allscripts, um, they announced an acquisition. They're acquiring Koha Health, a revenue cycle management company. 
and Verdine's public. So this is also a good sign. It is that natural consolidators, so a well-established public digital health company, Veridime, which is in the EMR space, um, is making a, um, an acquisition of a small revenue cycle management company. So we definitely want to see natural acquirers like large public mature software companies in digital health acquiring small companies in digital health. So both of these are good starts to the new year, healthy. You know, it's, it's good to see some acquisitions happen. It's good to see uh, a leading company raise a big round. Um, uh, so um, just any any thoughts on those two announcements, Paul? No, I think it's, it falls in line with what we talked about before, Con continued good news and kinds of things we want to see for, for a healthy market going forward. That's great. And John in the comments, he mentions that Devoted is is a company that's often thought of as a as a possible IPO. Um, and so, yeah, and so this, you know, this could be interpreted as a kind of a crossover round uh, in the lead up to an IPO. Uh, uh, you know, um, so uh, and then um, so other stories, um, Guide Health an AI-enabled value-based care provider. That, that, that's, that's a pretty good buzzword term there. And AI, if, if value-based care is not RISI enough, then you can always throw in AI-enabled value-based value care provider um, for health systems announced it acquired healthcare data analytics company, Arcadia's value-based care services division and managed services organization. So this is, I only, I bring this story up just because this is another acquisition. So we, we would, so what's happening is, is that digital health software sectors are maturing. As part of that maturation, software buyers like hospitals or employers want to buy suites. They, the suites are well understood. The solutions are well understood in the suites. They want to start buying suites. This leaves the vendors to then do acquisitions. So incumbent vendors who have good sales forces go out and buy products and fill and fill it in. And we haven't actually seen a lot of that because of low interest rates for over a decade, but now we're starting to see it in the new year. I think it's a very good trend to see an active, healthy acquisition market. Um, uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, so, so that's, so that, that's another, another story. And then I also saw, in the last several weeks, there have been several announcements of the funding of very early stage AI-themed companies. So that, that's consistent with what we've been seeing on this on this show a lot, is that for a year, um, AI themes have been very popular for early stage companies and digital health to use to raise money from investors. So Paul, any, any thoughts on those stories or any stories that you saw in the press that you want to call our attention to? I think it's consistent, this whole idea. I mean, Arcadia has been around for a while. And they're known very much for um, data analytics and the like. However, they, they really weren't considered an AI-type company. So the fact that they're being pulled into Guide Health is, is going to be very helpful for the market. It's going to be very useful for Arcadia because, frankly, absent this, I don't know where Arcadia would be, uh, absent an AI partner, but now an AI owner. Great. So now... Moving on to our next section, which is about talking about um, valuation in the sector. So uh, just for time reasons, I'm going to skip over what I usually say about valuation levels, and I'll cover that next week. But um, Paul, do you have any thoughts? Do you have anything you want to bring to our audience's attention about valuation or consolidation in digital health? 
Um, I mean, we have a lot of information regarding that. Uh, I think the, the really interesting kinds of things are that digital health startups raised 2.5 billion over 119 deals. Um, it's the second lowest quarter funding since quarter four, 2019. So I think that's, that's interesting and, you know, unfortunate, but as we've talked about, I think the sea change is here and that's not going to be something that we have to be concerned uh, going forward as much as we have in the past. That goes for the low, lower valuations for startup companies. Um, that's a phenomenon that's occurred over the last year. Once again, I think that's going to continue to change and get back to, or at least close to what the valuations used to look like and that we're all familiar with. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's great. Um, to, it's great to hear. So, um, and I'd say that, um, that, you know, we, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll cover, I'll treat valuation more in, in my next show. I'll, I'll do a, a sort of a recap of, of his, historic levels and where we are today. Um, so uh, the next topic is upcoming conferences. So here, the big news on everyone's mind is that JP Morgan's coming up next week. So for digital health people, what, what I recommend is for Monday night, I like the looks of the Digital Health Soiree Party, which is sponsored by Finn Partners. Um, and uh, also Monday is the Signal Fire Health and Life Sciences Tech Reception. Um, so Signal Fire is a, is a San Francisco venture fund. And uh, I believe that my friend Xuan Gui, who is the founder of the Health Disruptors, I think he is inviting his friends there and is a co-sponsor of that reception. So those are the Monday of the 100 plus cocktail parties happening at JP Morgan that night. Um, those are the two I recommend for people in digital health. Uh, and then on Tuesday night, I recommend the Rock Health Reception. Um, that's always great. And I've heard that it's booked out, but you can get on the wait list for that. Um, and then there's also a company called Novature, and they put together a list of all the events and conferences, not just evening cocktail parties, but also um, side side conferences and and uh, panels and that sort of thing. And so I put the link to that in my newsletter that goes out. But for those of you who'd like to get that link, let me know. Um, and actually, I'll put it, I see that uh, Paul has put the link to Novaker in the room chat. So everyone on here can can go to that to um, get that link. Uh, so, and then also on Monday, January 8th, during the day, um, my friend Grady Hanna, who's the CEO of Nightware, um, he is co-sponsoring a conference called the Rapid Acting Mental Health Treatment Conference. So for those of you who are who are interested in that topic, rapid acting mental health treatment, um, that would be a great a great conference to attend while you're in San Francisco. Um, and you can ping me; I'll send you the link to it to, to the conference as well. Um, and uh, I think it's on it's on I have it down here as on both January seventh and January eighth, but I'll I'll clarify that. Um, so that, that that's another um, another event. Um, and then beyond JP Morgan, so it'll be interesting. There's a question hanging over the head of JP Morgan, which is that the health conference, which, had, which was in October in Las Vegas, um, 
was created to kill off JP Morgan. Uh, <laughs> and so how's it going? And JP Morgan itself has taken its part of the conference and turned, and it's primarily about public biotech these days, because um, that's so big. Uh, and then there's a whole multi-ring circus going on around JP Morgan, the Weston St. Francis Hotel. Uh, and so there's an interesting question, which is that clearly the conference was hurt by the pandemic. The conference was hurt by the open air drug markets of San Francisco. Um, and so it is, will, is JP Morgan hurt by the competition provided by the health conference? Um, or is it coming back strong? And so I'll, I'll let people know after that conference what I think is it worth going. But in general, I think it's still worth going. It's, it's worth going to both. And the question is, if you, if you only have a budget for one, which would you go to? And most people I, I know in the innovation economy prefer health because there's very good venture attendance at health. So if you're a young company CEO, you know that you can meet with nearly every venture fund you want to meet with at health. And it's an outstanding experience. It's all inside of one luxury uh, convention center in Las Vegas, uh, instead of being on the streets of Union Square in San Francisco. So there's, there's, um, next is Vive is coming up in February in Los Angeles. So people are thinking about Vive, especially for VCs that invest in, 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 in tech companies that sell into provider organizations. Vive is a conference that focuses on, on providers and payers. Um, so, and then HIMSS is coming up in Orlando in March. Um, and I think that Vive was actually designed by Jonathan Weiner um, uh, to kill off HIMSS. So Jonathan Weiner designed Health to kill off JP Morgan and designed Vive to kill off HIMSS. And he put them one or two months in advance of, of those conferences. And so we'll have to see how, how Vive is going and how HIMSS is going. So, um, uh, Paul, any thoughts on conferences? What, what are you going to, uh, uh and any, any that you would add to this list? No, you did a nice, very nice job. I, I'm, I'm likely to go to the HIMSS conference. That's the, the conference I'll likely go to this year. As you and I had talked about before, I'm also a practicing physician, so I also have to cater to the needs of my patients on the two half days that I do. So I'm limited in terms of all, all the amount of conferences I go this year in particular. So what I'm hearing about HIMSS, so I, I've been to HIMSS a bunch, and I've even led investor tours around HIMSS, visiting all the public companies that are presenting oh, wow. at HIMSS. Um, and, you know, one of the issues is that HIMSS used to really dominate in the EMR sector and revenue cycle management sector. Um, and uh, those sectors aren't as big as they were in the past. They're not as big and competitive as they were in the past. And so HIMSS used to just charge the earth for um, for expo space. And then there was the promise that there would be um, hospital CIOs walking the aisles, hospital CFOs walking the aisles, and as a vendor, you could talk to them. And in general, what I'm hearing is that those vendors are not happy about, is that the conference is under threat by Vive, uh, and those vendors are not happy about the fees they have to pay to get the 40 by 40 booth or whatever. Um, and also that they're not, they're not, they don't get the quality time with senior executives in the office of the CIO or office of the CFO. So there's a, lot, there's a lot going on that's challenging the HIMSS conference. Um, but there was a time when it was the only one out there. It was, it was the big event of the year. Um, and you could, as a, as a vendor, expect to be able to talk to hospital CIOs on the floor. So that, that'll be interesting to see if, if that's still how, how that's working out. So um, uh, 
Well, so that now we'll go on to personal notices. Um, so my personal notice is that um, I'll be at JP Morgan next week. So if, if anyone wants to reach out to me, set up a meeting with me, I'm happy to, to meet up at JP Morgan. Um, uh, and oh, we have a, a remark from, from Ava here, which is that we pitched at the startup competition at Health and made lots of amazing connections. That, that's great to hear. You know, I, I'm just going to guess that those um, that those connections are, um, uh, you know, uh, both investors and also since, um, you know, and where um, we pitched the startup competition at Health and made lots of business connections. So that, that that's probably investors, maybe also software buyers as well. Um, and then Paul in the chat has thrown out, there's actually apparently a link called jpmguide.com. So that is, for those of you who have, it's, it's hard to know how to make use of the JP Morgan Conference since most people who go don't have a ticket and are, and are looking to just do meetings with other people who are going. Um, and so this J, JPM guide is someone has written up a guide, um, you know, and that, that's worth a glance if you, if, if your agenda is not already filled out for JP Morgan. Um, so, um, and then uh, uh, Chris um, Ragusa, Digital Health Geek, has written, if you're looking for payer market partners, we had a good interaction at AHIP. Um, that, that's great to hear. Yeah, so AHIP is America's health insurance plans. And if you're a vendor selling into health insurance plans, that, that's, that's the best conference to go to. So... So personal notices, I'll be at JP Morgan. And then also I am hosting a cocktail party in Boston, a digital health cocktail party on January 17th at the Liberty Hotel in downtown Boston in the evening. And our guest of honor is Liz Quo, um, who's a former, who's a doctor and was a senior medical officer at a health plan. And now she works with young vendor companies selling into health plans and others. And she's gonna speak on the topic of, um, of digital MDs, which is a book she's writing, which is what, what does it mean to be uh, a, a, a doctor in the current digital era, basically. So, and I hope that some of you, anyone who's in Boston can come and join us Thursday, January 17th um, uh, uh, for, for this event. We're, we're at the Millennium Tower in downtown Boston. Um, so, uh, and then uh, Paul, um, any personal notices, public appearances by you? Public appearance, hymns like I talked about, um, and I certainly will be at your cocktail party. The, for folks that haven't been there, they're, they're exceptional. The people that you meet are exceptional, and usually the folks that speak do an exceptional job as well. So highly recommend it that people attend. I know that was, ah. that was, not, that was not asked of me to, to, uh, to sell, but I think it's, it was, it's really worth it. Well, well thank you. And then we have uh, someone, um, Amard, um, Amar, has asked, anyone knows of a guide to make the most of JP Morgan if you have tickets? Okay, so to actually have tickets, what that technically means is that the JP Morgan Investment Bank is giving you tickets. And usually that means that you are an investor client of JP Morgan, which in turn usually means that you are a mutual fund or a hedge fund. Um, and you buy stocks of, uh, of companies that JP Morgan takes public or does equity issuances of, or makes a market in or, or covers from an equity research perspective. And so uh, there, um, the content of the actual JP Morgan conference inside of the West and St. Francis is just CEOs of public companies 
or companies that may be public within the next 12 months, giving their standard investor presentation that's updated. Often they will save an important announcement for the morning of their presentation, and then they'll tie that into their presentation. So they might tie in an acquisition or a product launch or something like that into their presentation. Um, and, and so that in and of itself, you're, you're just, you know, oftentimes those kinds of investors, they want to hear in person and meet in person the CEO, CFO of those public companies. And so I would just go to the ones you're interested in. Now, at the same time, the, usually JP Morgan um, takes people by bus to the San Francisco Art Museum and does a cocktail party in there on Monday night. And that one is not to be missed, but you have to have tickets to go to that particular. So that, that's the best cocktail party. And it's the one hosted by JP Morgan itself. And so if you actually have a ticket to the conference, then you have a ticket to that, to that cocktail party and I would go to that. So that, that, that's my guide to JP Morgan for people who actually have tickets. Um, so um, let's see. So the next one is um, our, our main topic, which is where value-based care is working. Um, so I, I thought I would just kick this off by saying that, you know, since World War II and before, um, America has had a fee-for-service healthcare system. Uh, and and fee for, what, what that meant is that, you know, doctors do work and that work is, is diagnosing and intervening and caring for patients and they're paid for that service. Um, and this has tended to value um, uh, labor over technology. It has tended to value interventions and care over diagnostic and diagnosis and thinking um, in the system. And it's also tended to promote care, even maybe when care was not necessary, because it's, it's promoting what was paid for. Uh, what, what gets paid for the the way that the money flows determines the way the healthcare system operates um and it was much criticized for that it was both good and bad it had, it had, it had strong points and weak points it was much criticized and then barack obama came along and he implemented the greatest healthcare reform of our lifetime in the 2008 to 9 time frame and that was obamacare which was the introduction of value-based care so value-based care uh, is paying for value or paying for outcomes, or it's sometimes even called a modified version of capitated care, which is, hey, you have someone with cancer, we know how much it costs to treat someone with cancer, so you're going to get that much money for treating someone with cancer. And then if you, if, if you have to do, if you mess up, you don't get extra for having messed up. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, um, and there's a hope that this change to fee for value will fix some of the excesses and some of the problems we had with fee for service over time. And there's a lot of promise with fee for value. You know, there's, there's bad jokes about healthcare that um, you don't know what healthcare under the fee for service model, uh, you know, you don't know what healthcare costs and often it costs much more than you thought. And so doctors would hold up, there was a Barbie doctor set that had the price of setting a bone and the price of stitches and that sort of thing. And doctors were like, we had to buy a Barbie set to figure out what, what things cost in healthcare because the system won't tell us under, under fee for service. Um, uh, but there's, there's a hope that we will both have under fee for value, which was part of the Obamacare reforms, um, there was a lot of hope uh, for a lot of reasons that it would fix some of the problems with fee-for-service. Interestingly, fee-for-service, the old system, 
will pay for labor, but doesn't want to pay for tech or thinking or diagnosis in general. Um, but fee for value in theory would highly value thinking and diagnosis and tech, tech often substituting for and automating skilled labor. Uh, fee for value in theory wants to pay for tech. And so this healthcare reform, the biggest of our lifetimes, could be the greatest thing ever ever to happen for software people in healthcare, for healthcare technology, is now they can finally sell tech into healthcare in a way that was quite, that had fitted into the fee-for-service system in the past, didn't work, didn't fit well into that. But a fee-for-value, they can sell tech, and it will just replace inefficient, skilled labor uh, with tech. And, and so in theory, this reform could be the greatest thing ever for um, for healthcare. Um, and so um, then people began noticing early in, in the years of the implementation of Obamacare, um, Trump was elected. Trump's first head of HHS was Tom Price, a former congressman who was a doctor. Tom Price was the first person to put brakes on um, on the shift to, to value-based care. And he said that the, the shift to value-based care could threaten the doctor-patient relation, the quality of the doctor-patient relationship. So Tom Price put brakes on it. People were trying to follow how is how does this, the system shift to value-based care away from fee-for-service care? And the answer to that was tended to be measured in contracts. So you have you have covering entities like commercial health plans or the Veterans Administration or or Medicaid, state Medicaid or something like that, and they had these contracts to cover their members um, with provider organizations, and they would shift these contracts to be fee for value contracts, and and um, and then they would and so the the way that that the shift was measured, the shift from fee-for-service to fee-for-value-based care was, do the contracts contain an element of value-based care in them? And if they contained any kind of element of value-based care in them, they were counted as value-based care contracts. And that turned out to be a very unsatisfactory way of thinking about it. Um, um, and then some of the incentives tended to be weak incentives for provider organizations. So for example, if you tell a provider organization that if you can do this cheaply, that you'll, you can split the profits that are saved, you can split the savings and there'll be additional profits to you. That tended to be a weak incentive and other incentives are strong incentives. So if you, if you tell a provider organization, um, if this person is readmitted to the hospital for the same condition within 30 days, then you don't get extra money for this. You, you eat the entire extra cost of caring for this person a second time. Um, that's considered to be a strong incentive. And so uh, people are trying to measure how much the system has moved from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. A lot of people say that the behavior of, of providers and doctors hasn't changed very much. They don't think. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. It's very hard to say whether it's... The whole point of, of making this big reform was to change the behavior of providers. And people are wondering, well, did it change? Are we seeing value-based care? Um, and so there's a lot of confusion, unhappiness, um, people believing that, that the shift has been a failure. The closest I've come is I've heard people say that we've moved about 15 points. So spending today is 85% fee-for-service based and 15% fee-for-value based care in the U.S. today. Um, and so that's 15 points in 15 years since Obamacare. So much slower than anybody would ever have guessed. 
but but no one agrees on these numbers. Everyone, uh, and there's no good authoritative source on how much we've shifted to value-based care. So I wanted to make that kind of intro to Paul. And I was chatting with you, Paul. You were saying, of course, there's value-based care. It's working. <laughs> and there's a lot of it. And maybe you would differ with those numbers. You'd say it's a lot more than 15%. And so I said, well, I got to have you on the show to hear about this shift to value-based care. Well, so that was my setup to this reform. Would love to hear from you. Are we seeing value-based care? Are the listeners on this call receiving value-based care from their physicians? Um, you know, uh, is the shift, how's the shift going? And is value-based care working? So to your point, it really depends who you talk to and what report you want to read. So for example, if you look at Humana, they have decreased emergency room and hospital admissions by 30% through their methodologies in the way that they pay for care. So very substantial change. If you think about it, admission to a hospital, it's probably about 15,000. If you talk about, and these are usually the older populations with Humana, uh, the Medicare Advantage, it's usually another 10 or 15 for a skilled nursing facility visit. So when you save an admission to the hospital, you save a very substantial amount of money. So if you look at Humanities of the World, and there's lots of other, I would say, organizations. I think of companies like Oak Street, CareMax, uh, these Village Medical, these are companies that, in doctor practices, that have really embraced value-based care and, and have shown us where the successes can be. One of the questions that you raised is, do I, how do I know I'm getting value-based care? Um, like, how do I know I'm within a particular contract and I'm getting something special um, because of it? The reality is most patients don't know that they're providers in a value-based contract or not. Um, you really one has to, to act, really one has to ask uh, the provider if they're in a value-based contract. And I think the providers will probably fall over if that question is asked them. Jason, you asked a question, does value-based care occur only in capitated arrangements? Um, the answer is no. So basically when I think about value-based care, it's really on a continuum. The, the end of the continuum, I'd say the extreme end of value-based care is a capitated type of arrangement. Um, so I'd say, yes, that's absolutely so. But I'd say the entree into value-based care frequently is um, continued fee-for-service, plus if you do these certain activities, you can gain some, some more dollars. So, for example, Blue Cross did a really nice job in Massachusetts of saying certain quality measures need to be met. And if you meet those quality measures, you'll actually be paid for them. And what was left out of that was the other part of value, which is there wasn't as much um, pressure put on the different provider groups to say, hey, by the way, you really have to control costs too. So over time, what's happened is a lot of those kind of contracts have migrated further down the continuum um, into the value-based care model. And in the in-between, there's pay for quality, plus there's um, different arrangements in terms of how money is split if, if the basically the, the uh, provider group performs better than what the budget would have expected them to. And that's usually a shared arrangement between the the provider and the, the health plan, whether the health plan is a commercial health plan, uh, Medicare Advantage, uh, Medicaid, or, uh, Med or um, Medicare itself. 
So that that's interesting, and that, and that explains why people have a great deal of difficulty understanding um, how much care has shifted to fee for value, which is that there's a continuum, and the contracts that you're covered under may have a couple of weak incentives, and that may be deemed value-based care or not value-based care, or it might have quite strict um, value-based rules like capitation, um, and. And it's just really hard to measure and tell from the outside. So um, let's say you had some sort of provider. So this is, let's say this is a hospital in Massachusetts and one patient is, and there's patients who are getting procedures. One patient's covered under one contract and it's effectively fee for service. Another one's covered on another contract is effectively value-based care. Are, are they going to be treated differently by the same provider? Are they going to get? Is one of them going to go to an aggressive antibiotic drug that's on that's, that's on patent and expensive faster uh, than the other? Is one of them going to get be told they're going to do watchful waiting instead of getting a procedure uh, or something? Um, will, will, will patients get different care if they're under different contracts from the same provider? So I would say, in reality, um, in general, I would say no. I think what what really will happen in value-based care, and I look at something like high-cost radiology. When I say high-cost radiology, I think of CAT scans and MRIs. MRI performed in the hospital is much more expensive than an MRI performed in a freestanding MRI center. So a patient will get an MRI. It's just going to go to a different place to get that, get that care. Now, certainly some um, plans are more restrictive than others. Um, and that's so folks can be in certain networks and they're expected to go to certain hospitals. And I would say sometimes there is an occurrence where there might have been a better doctor at a different hospital, but because of the way the contract's arranged um, in a specific fashion, that the patient has to go to a hospital A instead of hospital B, um, there could be a difference in the kind of care they get. That's my opinion, by the way. <laughs> So P Patricia has a question. How can adopting a value-based care model shift focus on preventative care over treatment-centric approaches? So um, would you expect to see that if, if, a, if a practice had recently adopted much more value-based care contracts and following that value-based care models, would they naturally shift to preventive care? Or I guess the question is, um, how can adopting a value-based care model shift the focus to preventive care? Yeah, I would say, I go back to the Oak Streets of the world um, that have these kind of arrangements whereby, and I don't know if anybody's ever walked into an Oak Street practice um, or some of the other competitors with Oak Street. It's really very, it's a very different experience. Um, I certainly don't work for Oak Street, never have, so just full disclosure there. But really the, the thought process is, okay, Part of the care is with the provider. So that's fine. The provider can be part, part of the team, but it's actually a team. And I think the other parts of it, the idea of social determinants of health, are also brought to bear. So, for example, food insecurity could be a huge issue, particularly someone who's elderly, the Medicare Advantage plan, and that could be something that's addressed in that environment. Um, care might be, say, for example, one um, does an evaluation of population, ideally through AI now, and looks at which folks have the most likelihood of incurring more cost, and that is usually it's being admitted to the hospital having a procedure done. Uh, those are typically where the higher costs are. 
and what kinds of services does, does one need to provide to them? So in a, in arrangement value-based care, there'll be programs where, for example, if you have three chronic conditions, for example, and say if the predictive modeling says you're at high risk of rehospitalization, there are now programs and companies that will go to your house specifically to address those issues at home and do more education, more uh, care coordination, so determining when patients need to be seen um, by specialists versus primary care. Uh, those types of programs can be implemented, and it's very different than what we used to do, I would say, or if you look at a typical fee-for-service arrangement. Um, can we subcategorize um, different parts of healthcare? Uh, so, for example, um, if someone is covered under Medicare Advantage, is that guaranteed to be a heavily value-based contract? If someone is covered by the VA, is that guaranteed to be a heavily value-based contract? If someone has a commercial plan, is that is that highly variable and doesn't necessarily need to be a value-based contract? Uh, is, is there a way to think about these, um, uh, about who has moved in the direction of value-based care? Um, I think in terms of, if, if you're talking from a patient perspective, looking at value-based care, is that what your the question's around? Oh, well, just, just because these are often determined by contracts, uh, yeah. you know, you've got certain veterans are covered under VA yeah. contracts and, and uh, seniors are covered under Medicare Advantage or Med Medicare or Medicare Advantage contracts. Yeah. Have, have some of these gone entirely in the direction of, of strong incentives for value-based care or have some, have some not moved at all? Yeah, I would say exactly that. Some have not moved at all or very little. And there's others that have gone, you know, full deeply into capitation. Um, in a percent of premium type of arrangements with the payers. And, and do we know like the, the, the VA has gone to full capitation, whereas uh, commercial competitive commercial plans haven't, uh, or is, is, it, is it possible to say that, or is it, is it, is it too difficult to, to, to make that generalization? Well, VA is, VA is a whole different system. So that, to me, that's a closed system that really isn't part of the conversation specifically around this. Um, I'd say VA is, is, is its own entity, and frankly, I'm not an expert at the VA finances um, and the VA arrangements um, because they are separate and apart from what typically happens. Um, so Patricia, Patricia was asking a question. Do you mean Medicare and VA contracts versus private insurers? Which ones? So I'm, I'm not, I, I was thinking of people, of, of veterans visiting VA hospitals. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I thought that would, because it's such a defined population, I thought that would yeah. be an obvious one to move, to move in the direction of, of, um, capitation, but I, I don't know. Um, so, um, uh, is it, um, so is there a good momentum to moving toward more value-based care? So you've got some contracts that are, have not, that are fee-for-service. And other yeah. ones that contain weak incentives, and there's a spectrum. There's the other yeah. contracts that have weak incentives toward value-based care. Others that have strong incentives toward value-based care, or, or even right. have moved all the way to capitation. Um, is, is there continued fast movement in the direction of value-based care? Is this a reform that's going to that's sweep across to 100% eventually, or are things stalled? And if they're stalled, what, what's stalling things? No, I would say they're continually moving forward. So I think the evolution 
to your point earlier, is can be very slow. But I think the reality is we're going to see more and more value-based care arrangements because they actually make sense. They have better outcomes. Um, they're more cost-effective. Um, providers now get paid for things that they wouldn't get paid for otherwise, the kind of activities that they do because of the way the value-based contracts are, are arranged. So I think that there's definitely movement towards value, more value-based, and I think there'll just be more and more of it. And frankly, the government now, through the different kinds of ACO programs, has been a big proponent of value-based contracting. So I think that's, to me, that's a huge signal that we're going to be moving, moving more and more into value-based arrangements. So I'm going to bet most people on this call have an employer. That employer you know, is offering them employer-sponsored um, health care from a commercial carrier in a, in a relatively standard plan that they've elected for. Um, and so they could expect that to change over time. And you know, th their doctor is not going to discuss this with them. Um, uh, and their doctor might be freaked out if, if, they, dis if they discuss this with <laughs> their doctor. Yeah, um, but, but those plans are going to... Um, are going to be more and more value-based. And so if I talk to people who study this matter up to now, they would say, they might say that we've seen 15 points of movement in 15 years, and that's much slower than anyone ever thought it would be. And they would blame Tom Price for stopping the momentum early on. And Washington and con uh, congressional uh, gridlock, and they might also blame, to a certain extent, doctors themselves, because yep. doctors had a pretty good deal under fee-for-service, uh, fee and some feel threatened by fee-for-value. Um, fee-for-value, among other things, it holds doctors accountable. In the past, doctors could just do things and charge Correct. for them. It didn't matter whether they worked. Absolutely. Um, and also, um, uh, uh, doctors now need to uh, effectively kind of there's this promise that the physician-patient relationship will lead to the patient changing and doing a better job as a patient in the future. For example, you know, perhaps um, uh, being more adherent with taking medicine. And so the doctor got, got, the, got the credit for that, whether it actually worked or not. But in the future, <laughs> the doctor is going to be on the hook. Did your patients actually take their meds that you told them to take? Um, and, you know, Aren't you measuring it? You're not measuring it. Why aren't you measuring it? Okay, you're measuring it, and they're not taking their pills. What are you doing to make them take their pills? Doctor didn't have to face that in the past. They may have Correct. to face that in the future, which then changes the relationship of the relationship between doctors and patients, because doctors are now, you know, disappointed in patients or tell, tell, telling them more authoritatively what to do, and maybe and patients are, you know, are canceling their next appointment because they don't want to come in and tell their doctor they never took the meds or something. So. Um, so that, so I'd say that, that there's a belief that this has moved a lot more slowly than anyone ever thought that it would. And I'm, I'm using the number 15%, which is yeah. a, a rough estimate, but you're saying that the decks are cleared and we could now see it move to much more, much greater than 15%, not slowed down as much as it was in the past. Is that, is yeah, that your, your view? That's my, that's my assessment. I think the other part that you're talking about is the physician, like the physician is the sole person sort of to talk to patients to, to get them to conform to a particular uh, health behavior. The reality is the way these things are structured is that because you're in a value-based arrangement, there's other resources that may not have existed before. So, for example, if you're a Medicare Advantage patient in a value-based deal, let's make believe it's capitated, um, 
It could be, you could actually literally get a visit from a pharmacist to your home. You could get a nurse that comes to your home. You may actually have urgent care that comes to your home. Um, so there's all these different folks uh, that are leveraged to go to the best outcome in those arrangements. So instead of having the physician say, I knew of a physician in Massachusetts who used to say, if you don't quit smoking, you can't see me anymore as a doctor. Uh, so that was the highest level of leverage I've ever seen. Never heard of it again. Um, but in fact, he did, did have patients that they all, they all quit smoking. This was years ago. Um, but now there's much more strategy around how to get patients to, to change their behaviors compared to, I'll call the dark ages of medicine, which I was part of, the fee-for-service kind of environment, which is, you know, okay, I'll see them four times a year. I'll tell them what to do. We'll have, we'll have an interchange in the 20 minutes with their 20 medical problems. And then uh, we'll all cross our fingers. So this, this has the promise of, it, it kind of, in certain ways, it literally inverts the doctor-patient relationship in, cert, in certain ways. So to give you an example, um, people have long had access to activity trackers, which are often those wrist-based bands yep. like, like Fitbit that track step count and other things. Yep. And so you'd have someone who maybe is a worried well patient who is checking their, their step count every day, and then they're like, they're like I'm going to email this into my doctor. Um, yep. And the doctor is like, don't give me the data. And by the way, <laughs> I, don't me, I don't do email. Um, don't give me another number to check and don't make me liable for, um, for your data. Yep. And don't give me homework that I'm not paid for. Um, yep. And that's fee for service. Um, and then under fee for value, it's so different. You might literally have the doctor says, do you prefer Fitbit or Garmin uh, for your activity tracker. Here, I'm giving you one. Please wear it. And, and when you come in next time, I'm going to ask you about wearing it um, or whatever. Uh, and so you have literally a, a reversal on that. So th th there's a thesis that I have that fee-for-service the old way really didn't like to buy technology, did not want to buy technology. So, and, and the ultimate example of that is that hospitals didn't want to buy EMRs until the government dropped a $40 billion bag of money on their head and told them they had to make meaningful use of EMRs. Um, and, uh, but under fee for value, and so what, but under fee for value, healthcare providers really do want to buy and use technology. Um, and so we're talking about this scale moving from 15% spend on, on significant fee for value contracts, fee for value contracts with, with hard incentives, and that's going to go up. Um, and then this will in turn will drive providers to spend that money on tech, not people. So under fee for service, uh, providers used to do what's called where we are optimizing fee for service, which meant that you hire the most expensive people that you can, the most expensive professionals that you can, and you build them plant, you build them hospitals and rooms and professional buildings. And then you run as many people through those expensive people billing at the top of their license. That was the model of fee-for-service. Um, and now, under fee-for-value, hospitals want to fire all those <laughs> expensive people and replace them with automation technology. Um, so uh, th that's the, the, the investment thesis for this. So you look at, um, you know, if, if you were an entry-level employee at IBM uh, 30 years ago, or were at GM, let's say you're an entry-level employee at GM 30 years ago, you had a secretary, you had a typing pool, you had a 
corporate librarian. You had a photocopy center with photocopy center employees who did your photocopy jobs for you. Um, you, you know, you had you had a corporate researcher, um, etc. Uh, now all those are gone now, and all those are just replaced by productivity systems. Um, and, and it's your job as a GM employee to know how to use those productivity systems. Um, and so, likewise, um, in a under fee for value, um, all those expensive people, some of them are still necessary, but in general, a lot of them is that's is the 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 way healthcare is paid for, providers are going to want to not have those people. They're going to want to replace them with um, with automation and with expert systems and that sort of thing. Do you agree with that characterization of the, of this, of the staffing difference between fee for ser- old fee-for-service and new fee-for-value? Um, I sort of agree. So I think there, there was a lot of shifts. Uh, you know, many, many years, if you go to any doctor practice, you'd see an RN that's in the office putting you in the room, taking your blood pressure, et cetera. Um, years ago, that shifted to the medical assistant, for example. So I think there's already been changes in the fee-for-service environment um, that really weren't because of the pressure of uh, specifically of um, the way the contract's written, more so about what overhead costs um, they could decrease. But I do agree 100% in the idea of to the extent that um, one can automate um, absolutely, it's something that we're going to do differently. The other thing is in the, the value-based care type of approach, you are hiring more bodies, and you're hiring different bodies than you might have before. And that's what I was mentioning about pharmacists, care managers. Um, you might even hire uh, nurse practitioners or doctors to go to people's homes and things, which was, would be unheard of um, in a fee-for-service environment. There's no reason to get those folks involved because it's really no value for the provider to do that. Although it's the right thing to do and it's, it definitely can improve care. So another thesis I've heard is, is that um, the, I, the IT systems that you need to run a fee-for-value medical practice or hospital department are totally different. Um, than the systems you need under fee-for-service. They're different in many ways. One important way they're different is that data matters more under fee-for-value. So in a sense, providers are taking on risk because they may agree to treat a patient with cancer. Now they need to know exactly what stage that cancer is, exactly how severe the cancer is and what's gonna happen next in order to be able to care for the patient, but also not lose their shirts uh, monetarily on this patient. Um, And so that thesis suggests that you need um, a whole lot of new software products for providers who will then have money to pay for them. Um, And that oftentimes the way innovation works is that these new products come from new vendors. So old vendors wind up sort of stuck in certain ways. they have some advantages, but sometimes it's not, that's not enough. And you have new vendors with new software. Um, so, so, and if the spend is shifted from fee for service, it used to be 100% fee for service, and now it's 15% fee for value. And it's 85% of the way to go to fee for value. And then I, I would say that providers were not known for buying new software from new vendors, especially during this shift of 15 points from fee for service to fee for value. So that suggests that there is going to be a tidal wave as the shift, as the spending goes from 15% to 100% fee for value. 
uh, of hospital spend on new software vendors, um, uh, new software products, probably from new software vendors. And I know a lot of um, saintly uh, technologists have already gone into this and been disappointed and not seen their ship come in um, uh, uh, and thought that it would and, it, and, it, and it's taken longer than expected. Um, but do you think we're going to see that and, and, and the countervailing forces that were, today a lot of medical providers and hospitals feel very poor and there's stories about them being almost bankrupt. Um, and so where is this money? Are they going to spend a lot in coming years on new software from new vendors, which would be great for the innovation economy? And where are they going to get the money from? So any, any thoughts on, uh, lots on of that? Good, lots of good meaty meaty questions in what you're asking. Um, so I think there's, there's no question um, that as you get to value-based contracts, there's definitely a move towards getting new vendors and getting different types of systems, for example. Um, the thing I think about right out, right out of the gate is risk stratification tools. So basically predict, trying to predict an AI is perfect for this. Um, I shouldn't say perfect, but useful for this. Um, and that is to be able to predict which patients are going to be the higher cost patients going forward. So typically in a provider group, it's not usually at the individual physician level, it's usually at the group level or the independent physician association level or the, the employed physician level that these types of tools are, are purchased. But these tools give us ability for pre predictive analytics going forward to figure out what to do with, with, with which patient. So I think there's other kinds of things like remote patient monitoring. So you were talking about these different, different types of tools that folks use, uh, but there's actually a lot of companies that do remote patient monitoring and have devices, and they can actually do a full type of service around that. Um, so those other kinds of technologies that have been purchased, telehealth, of course, I mean, we can't have this conversation without mentioning telehealth. You know, because of COVID, there's been this massive sea change in terms of the acceptance of telehealth, which was meandering very slowly for a very long period of time. But for COVID, it wouldn't be where it is today. So I'd say there's definitely going to continue to be a movement. And under fee-for-service, a lot of those things were happening, but they somehow had to be tied into a code um, or... You know, uh, and sometimes they they competed with reimbursement of a professional. So, so and the professional didn't want to use the tech or whatever. But under fee for value, this kind of a holistic look at, okay, could we care for this patient in a home setting? Would that be better overall? And then if it is, then provide the tech that's needed. Um, you know, correct. But may even be cheaper to provide the yes, tech to have the person do you know, remote monitoring at home than have them come in and be seen to by a professional in the office. Um, uh, so, um, and then you, you might still be able to charge codes for doing it, but, uh, but you might not be able to, and it might just be a matter of, as a practice, sa saving money because you have to do the work anyway, but this is a more, a more automated, more uh, tech-intensive way to do it. Um, so we, we have a question about... Um, about pay viders, um, so uh, pay viders better. Um, I, I think actually, I, I've heard a couple people, uh, 2004, 2024 New Year's resolutions is to avoid ever hearing the word pay vider uh, again. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, integrated health delivery networks, pay viders, 
um, are they especially well suited to um, maybe to, to bid for uh, fully capitated contracts to carry out fully capitated care? Um, what, what, what do you think? Um, from, from my perspective, I think they have the unique um, position to be able to get the information about the patient claims to actually have the integration with the providers in such a way to drive performance. So I think having that as, as uh, a complete package, I think there's definitely certain advantages that one can gain uh, through that arrangement. Yeah, I, I'd be, I'd be pro, I'm pro payvider personally. I think this, this is a great opportunity there. And I, I, I'd add for that that there's actually there's a lot of serious discussions happening in uh, large provider organizations in hospitals uh, around the country where, you know, they, they said, well, we, our book used to be entirely full of contracts that were fee for service contracts. Yeah. And we didn't bear risk because patient could cost twice as much. And we just we, we just billed for twice as many services. We didn't care. Yep. Um, and then who bore the risk? The payer bore the risk. And so now payers are coming to us under this new system. And they're saying, we want this contract to be a fee for value um, contract. And, and so and now the hospital is saying, well, OK, so if I want that contract, they're only selling it as a fee for value contract. Therefore, I have to buy it as a fee for value contract. So I'll take that on. Now I am at risk. Um, and so what is the role of payers now? Because the, the most important thing that they did was to manage risk. And now they're not managing risk anymore. So what's the yeah. role of payers? So why don't I just perform the role of payers and collect the, the um and collect the, the revenue and collect the fees for being a payer and then cut the middleman, which is the payer, out of this because because they want to sell me contracts that that, that, that devalue their, their only important role. I mean, they, they serve an admin administrative role and they serve a, a risk management role. Um, and compliance. And, uh, and so you have, have some hospitals, some hospitals hate the idea of having to take on fee for value contracts or did in the past. Other ones aggressively want to because they say we can be, we used to be just the provider. Now we can be the provider and the payer and cut the and cut the old payer out and and we'll, we'll eat that dinner ourselves. Um, and so, um, but yeah, and so and then some some uh, providers were already payer providers. They were already both together. Right? Those right. are very well suited. And in theory, they had better information systems to manage all of this because they were they were built and and set up to manage issues like sicker patients and risk classification of patients and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and if you look at Humana, is a great example of it. Um, so, uh, Patricia asked, any good read recommendations on the current status of value-based care for Medicare and private insurers and digital mm -hmm. trends as a result of this? Um, I, I can't think of any. Patricia, Paul, do you have any? Um, no, but it's just, we can certainly talk offline. I can find some for you. And Jason remarks, zero innovation in healthcare without a preceding law requiring it. I, I think that has historically been true, that you need uh, a regulation will drive change in healthcare. Um, but I think that the, the hope of Obamacare that may be realized is that it has this potential to create the Wild West before the introduction of barbed wire, which is that, um, you know, under under just capitation now providers are incented to to tear up the old rule book and figure out how do we provide this care uh you know that, that that's 
as good quality or higher quality at the same price or lower price. And a great example of that would be uh, providers choosing to move the care to a lower cost setting and reduce the number of people involved in it. If you think about the way that that fee for, for service, the old model fee for service worked, it was tell the patient, cancel your plans, come into the highest cost <laughs> setting you possibly can, and we're going to line up the most expensive professionals we can to see you. And then right. someone has a someone wrote some software to automate this, and so and, and we're not going to we're not going to buy that software. We don't we don't want to buy that software. Uh, and so then you move that to a fee for value setting, um, and it's, everything is exactly the opposite now. It is yeah. moving to the lowest cost setting possible. The patient's home. Let them pay for their air conditioning, not us. Let them pay for the electricity to, to power these devices, not us. Um, and then um, have, have as, as little time of, of expensive professionals spent as possible, automate everything else. Um, yeah, to an extent you can. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I, when I started practicing, it was this pathway for patients. So basically, patient would come in, they have a UTI, urinary tract infection. They get admitted to the hospital, it's automatically five-day stay. Um, and something that really could have been treated as an outpatient. So as I as I listened to you, uh, you know, we we definitely were in a, a a very happy position in terms of the hospitals to be able to bill whatever the heck we wanted for whatever we got, and we took full advantage of that as a system. That's right. And so John John Moore of Chilmark asks, um, have either of you read the Social Determinants of Health playbook? Any thoughts on it? So um, I. Um, I've not I've not read the playbook, um, but I would say that um, the idea of social determinants of health is getting at a truth. And the truth is that, that there's a holistic story of is the person in a good environment with respect to their family, their friends? You mentioned food insecurity, you know, um, a low stress life and neighborhood, a good diet, sleep, exercise. Um, uh, and that this uh, is is important, um, and a lot of this is beyond medicine. Medicine is is has a narrow definition of it's it's serious stuff that doctors do. Um, in the past, it was what the doctors did within the four walls of a medical institution or something like that. Um, and um, so, social determinants of health it's important, and it can have as big as or possibly even a bigger impact uh, as what a doctor does in twenty minutes once you know once a quarter with a patient. Um, uh, but it's, it's very ambitious. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, it, and, and it's, it's, it's hard to imagine sort of one, one of these holistic programs with someone because it, 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 it sort of touches and also interferes in their life, you know? So to a certain extent, Americans don't want to live a healthier lifestyle. They want to be prescribed a pill. That's what they really, what they really want. And social determinants of health is trying to come in and shake them and make them live that healthier uh, life. So any, uh, Paul, any thoughts on social determinants of health? And I know last year and this year are going to be big years for social determinants of health and discussion of that and maybe even paying for um, And in value-based care, they're going to have to start caring more about social determinants of health because their whole plan could get wrecked by, you know, by, by something avoidable in the person's life. Yeah, I'm, I'm ecstatic that social determinants of health has, has come to 
come to fruition the fact that we're actually addressing those kinds of things because for years we didn't even think about it. We, that was something that was just a black box. That's their concern, not, not ours. As you get to these value-based arrangements and capitated arrangements in particular, it gives one a lot more flexibility to address those social determinants of health and be able to care for the patient better than we ever could historically. It's going to be interesting where the line's drawn. That's where it's going to get really interesting. Are we going to stop moving people out of the neighborhoods, for example, um, and spend the money to do so? Uh, those are the kind of things I think about. Um, you know, where are we going to draw the line in terms of what we're going to do? Certainly meal plans make sense, but I don't know what we can afford um, within the value-based model constructs. Um, so we're going to be winding up soon. So for our audience, any other um, uh, any other questions? Um, and uh, John also adds uh, the social determinants of health playbook is interesting because it talks about a path to actually making the collection of social determinants of health metrics actionable. Yeah, that, that, so, you know, potentially we'll be gathering a lot more data, um, which then, you know, can alert us to opportunities, care gaps, uh, you know, problems coming up, that, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, I'll just see if there's any any more. So, uh, Paul, can, since you're a practicing physician and you have seen patients under fee for service in the past and now fee for value, can you give us one or two examples of how um, care might be different uh, between between the two? Because it's expected that, especially with incentives like. Um, if a patient is readmitted, you get no extra dollar. You, you pay. You have to pay for that, and you get no extra dollars um, uh, from the government, for example, from a payer, for example. Yeah. There's expected to be behavior change on the part of providers. So, can you give us one or two examples of of changes you've seen or you've heard? I can, do, I can give you a quick patient vignette. That might be the best way to. So, a patient that's uh, say 85 years old has a history of lung disease, heart failure, um, has increasing shortness of breath has gained like 10 pounds, and they're obviously, they're, they're holding on to more fluid than normal, um, and they're having difficulty. So in the fee-for-service environment, the patient calls up, I say, oh, thanks for calling, go to the hospital, go to the emergency room, be taken care of. Go to the uh, value-based arrangement. Hi, it's Dr. Bergeron. Actually, it's not me, I'm not even answering the phone. Someone else is answering the phone. Someone says, hey, you know, this, this, this is the clinical scenario. Um, I or someone within the team basically dispatches the person to go to the house, gives that patient intravenous Lasix, where, which allows the patient to get some of that fluid off, and then um, causes home monitoring to occur for the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, patient seen on a daily basis and hospital admissions averted. So that's, that's a, a really good example in the different ways that um, value-based versus non-value-based care. Very interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. This is a very different context, but th this story is from like 20 years ago. There was an American medical mission to Africa. I think it was uh, Nigeria. Um, and you and so this, these medical missionaries, it might have been part of a USAID program, let's say, and, and they traveled as a group to Nigeria. Um, and they set, up in a, they set up a clinic in a village. And the clinic literally was, they had a tent under a tree in a village. Uh, and then in the tent was 
uh, a nurse, uh, no, I'm sorry, in the tent was, was, was the doctor with a kit and they, they were doing very basic uh, medicine. And then outside of the tent was a nurse under the shade of a tree. And then they had an assistant and the nurse had a clipboard and the assistant would help with language or, or things like that. And so patients in the, in the village presented with issues. Um, an issue could have been infection with a parasite, for example, or something like that. Yeah, um, and the nurse, uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the, the nurse would listen to the story and write everything down on the, on the, on the um, clipboard uh, and then tear the paper off, give it to the assistant and the patient, and they would walk into the tent and there was a doctor um, with a kit um, and doctor would do a procedure. Um, and so they heard, this is like 20 years ago, they heard that there was a Russian medical mission um, 50 miles away um, and in a different village. And so they shut down their, their um, clinic at five o'clock and they got in their Toyota 4Runner and they decided oh. they were going to go visit that village and talk to the Russian medical mission. And so they went to the village and sure enough, there was a Russian medical mission there and they, they went to a bar together and hung out at the bar and had drinks. Um, and they talked to the Russians about how they set up their medical mission. And the medical mission was the same, except that they had the doctor was in the shade under the tree with the clipboard and the nurse was in the tent with the kit. <laughs> and so they, they thought about this and they were saying, and they said, and they said, well, why, why, why do you do it that way? Um, why, why don't you have the doctor in the tent and the nurse, like, why, why do you have the doctor outside of the tent and the nurse in the tent? And they said, well, they said, because diagnosis is the hardest part of medicine. And so we put the person with the most training on the hardest job. And so the American medical mission thought about this and it, it, it just, it seemed odd to them. And they, then later they got back in their, in their truck, they drove back to the village. And then one of them said, they finally realized why the Americans, why their own team did it the way they did it. And that the reason was billing. <laughs> um, and so that, that's the, that's, that's, the awful. <laughs> uh, that's the fee for service um, yep. reality, uh, which was we don't pay for diagnosis, but we pay for, um, for action and procedures. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and so what we may see under, under a fee for value system is we may see some, some changes like that, because now, you know, you're, 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 if you're capitated, then you're not paying a, a highly skilled person for their skill to do a procedure, you're paying for the outcome. And so you can now take the doctor and put them in charge of diagnosis. So, exactly. um, anyway, so we're at, um, everyone, um, you know, great, great to see you all on the call. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, um, yeah, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, so we'll be, we'll be signing off. Uh, so you've been listening to digital health investor talk, uh, with your host, Steve Wardell and our thanks to our guest, Paul Bergeron. Thanks for coming, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. And our, our next show is on Wednesday, January 17th at 4 PM. The topic is more on selling to payers in 2024 with our guest, Liz Kuo, um, the author of the upcoming Digital MD, Revolu Revolutionize the Future of Healthcare. And to our Boston audience that same day, January 17th, um, we're also doing 
a, uh, a drinks night with Liz Quo as our guest of honor um, at the, uh, at, uh, from 5.30 to 8.30. You can find a registration for these events at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com to look these up. And you can follow me on Twitter where my handle is, at Stephen Wardell. Um, so uh, we're looking forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks and bye-bye. Thank you.